1: Hi, this is Stuart, just cutting in before the start of my podcast interview with screenwriter, author, singer-songwriter Jeff Dean, talking about his memoir, From Mohair Suits to Kinky Boots. Uh, This was a bit of an experiment, it turned out. Um, The first 15 minutes or so were recorded using Google Meet, and the next 40 minutes were recorded using Zoom. It's safe to say that the audio quality on Zoom is far greater than Google Meet. If anyone can tell me why or how I can fix this problem, it will be gratefully received. But for now, on with the show. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is what I'm framing you as a true polymath of pop culture. Are you having that one, Jeff Dean? I'll be very happy with that, mate. Thank you very much, dear. Yeah. Um, Renaissance Geezer works out whether Renaissance Stroke, Renaissance Geezer. We're here because you've written a book called "From Mohair Suits to Kinky Boots: How Music, Clothes, and Going Out Shaped My Life and Upset My Mother," um, which I'm guessing is a full-on memoir. Actually,
2: it's not. Um, not really. i um, just, despite what my
1: publishers.
2: Uh, whatever you believe. It isn't really. It's a, it's a series of essays and stories um, constructed very randomly, really, from different aspects of my life. Um, from, you know, where I grew up in Hackney, uh, my interest in clothes, my interest in music, my career in music, my career in film or telly, uh friends and family. Uh, but they're very random musings. Um, you know, I wrote it on the hoof, as it were. Okay. It was a bit of a lo- It was a lockdown conception. It began as some vignettes and stories I was just posting on social media for my own amusement. I remember them. People. Yeah. So it, it was really nice, you know. After working in film, which, as you know, comes to so many constraints, and you're always part of a committee,
1: you, you know. Um, well, look before you just, get into it. Maybe I should just say then, when I say you're a polymath. What I mean is you were a singer of the cult band Leighton Buzzards. You were the singer-songwriter with Modern Romance. You wrote the gay anthem, You Think You're a Man, for, uh, for Divine. And then fast forward to 21st century, you're a screenwriter, best known now for Kinky Boots and It's a Boy Thing, and more recently book of love you've done some tv stuff i think is it birds of a feather is that one yeah of I, did
2: quite, I did quite i did quite a bit of tv yeah in
1: between yeah did quite a
2: lot of tv comedy and i wrote for jonathan ross as well i made a tv movie uh i keep moving mate every time Indeed. i get rambled
1: i move on. but all, but all, but it's it's clear obviously <laughs> and then the the, the the fashion and the music bit they blur into each other don't they i guess in terms of in terms of their influence yeah. whatever, when you were certainly when you're in the music and i'm I've been knowing you, like, just for the listeners' benefit, I first met you on a Liverpool podcast talking to a Tottenham fan.
2: That's right. Yeah. And I'm still a Tottenham fan. And
1: actually, what an
2: extraordinary joyous time. (laughs) You've caught me at such a fortuitous moment, you know, for five, for for what, five years, I've been swerving the subject every time (laughs) anyone pulled it up. And suddenly, this magical thing has happened.
1: Some daft Aussies come into your life, hasn't he?
2: Oh, man. And, and you know, it, it's kind of really important
1: to me because
2: um, football to me, you, you know, I'm a man of passions and a fanboy, as yeah. you know. Yeah. And I like things to be fun and exciting and inspiring. And that's what I get. I get that from football the same as I do my work. And I'm not one of these diehard people that will sit there watching it every week when it's surging and depressing, I, I've got way better things to do with my time, you know? So, I mean, from that perspective, you could possibly call me a fair weather supporter, I suppose, but um, it's great that it's fun. Again. I don't care if we don't think in win the league or anything like that, you know, it's, it's impossible, but it doesn't actually matter to me. The fact that it's fun and inspiring again, and I'm rushing to get home to watch a game or something like that, which I haven't been so long. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're you're a Liverpool fan, so you've had it better now. Mm. You know, but it,
1: it's just enjoyable when you're on a roll and there's a bit of momentum and it's fun again. Absolutely. So, so so, going back to when you start this book, so you're writing these sort of missives on social media to entertain yourself and obviously pe- friends of yours and, and people that don't know you but find it, f- but know of you. And then, how does that sort of go over the hump of being something you're doing Entertain yourself almost to a serious proposition like developing it into a book? Well, lo- I mean, hundreds of people very kindly messaged me to say that
2: um, we really like this, you've got to turn it into a book. And being the uh, kind of expert businessman that I am, <laughs> I completely ignored them, you know, just <laughs> what do you know? Um, but then uh, a chap called Maurice Grant, um, who I used to work for, when I first one of the first jobs I had in TV was working for Birds of Feather and Maurice Brand and his partner Lawrence Marks. Um, they created umpteen good t- TV shows. And yeah. they're really they're really good at it. Much better, you know. I'm a really I think I'm a really good writer. Lawrence and Maurice have great ideas, and they're really great at selling them. Okay. Well, far far better than I am. I I struggle with ideas generally. You, you know, I, I labour for ages and ages for one idea for a film or a TV thing. It can take me years. They got to sleep and, you know, kind of wake up with one. And <laughs> Morris got in touch and he said, you're an idiot. Why don't you make this into a book? And I went, oh, all right, that's a good idea. Thanks, Maurice. <laughs> because, because basically I listened to it. Right, know, okay. Um, and I spoke to a friend of mine, Kimberly Chambers, who's a... Uh, She's a Tottenham supporter as well. I, I, I was doing a bit of work with her, trying to help. Uh, I was hired by a publisher to try and help uh, convert some of her books into TV. Or, yeah, she's or TV a novelist, isn't she? Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, you know, we're we're re- really good mates. So I asked her a little bit, you, you know, because I didn't really, I genuinely didn't really know hmm. about how to get a book published. She gave me a kind of few tips. A a couple of publishers were a bit bemused by it because it wasn't like a full autobiography. Hmm. Um, But, you you know, my attitude to autobiographies really is that, therefore, people who have led truly exceptional lives or are so famous that you don't notice that they haven't led truly exceptional (laughs) lives. And, you know, I don't really think I'm either of that, really. Um, and I read a lot of autobiographies and skip huge chunks which I'm not interested in, you, you, you know. Um, so this is kind of like the good bits, if you know. What I mean, I decided I wanted to stick to that, I don't want to expand it into a, a fuller, more rigorous autobiography. It's just you know, it doesn't really interest me. It's like a, as I say, it, it's, a, it's a collection of stories that are emotional, mainly fun. Yeah. Really, you know um, I like funny books I like funny people I like funny movies you know um, uh, yeah so that was kind of how it went and then yeah that, that was it really and suddenly it all came together and it's like oh, I'm me, you know and this, you know this always happens with me because like, I've never really made a decision to do anything in my life I never made a decision to go into music to get out of music to go into celly to go into film. You know, I've never had the thought or, or the planning. It's all kind of just, I don't know, there's a door open and you stagger through it or trip up and suddenly you find that you're there. And once you're doing that, you seem to have, unfortunately, left other things behind, which you didn't always mean to do. Yeah. And then later, and then later on, why Why am I doing that anymore? Well, because you stopped doing it, you idiot. <laughs> you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: so it's it kind of worked a little bit like that. And so it is with this
1: thing.
2: And what, what's been interesting, I mean, um, is I think one of the nice, I mean, I feel very unawfully, you know, I mean, they're asking me about doing literary festivals and the like, <laughs> and I was like, Ooh, you know, you know, but what, what's been quite good is I've been doing some reading. Yeah. You know, um, but, they're kind of quite funny and they're almost like a reading verging a little bit towards the stand-up
1: kind of thing.
2: Um, Which I didn't really expect. It just happened kind of
1: fluidly, you know? But I guess, I guess that, I guess David Sedaris has done that for a long while, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah,
2: absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. But,
2: it's not something that was at the fore of my mind, Hmm. you know what I mean? But, you know, I think, yeah, but but it, it's like how much I'm enjoying it. You know, it's like yeah. this is not a chore to do. It's actually a nice thing. And I haven't interacted with an audience directly since the band days. And I realised kind of how much I like it. Yeah. You know, it's great that, you know, audiences are just the best thing. And they're the best yardstick you can ever have, have for how your material's working or, you know, but like you can't argue with it, man. No, you know, beats all the market research in the world. People clap and laugh, or they just don't laugh at a joke. You know, mm. <laughs> it's there; it's all there for you. And, and I'm really enjoying it. I like that intimate, feed, you know, feedback that you
1: get. Yeah, it's, it's all- I, I'm going to say, it's, but it's almost like the opposite of of writing, which is such a solo pursuit. Whether it be screenplay, songwriting, or or, uh, or writing these uh, these sort of funny parts of your life as you want to identify them you know, then suddenly it's been in front of an audience. That's the, the the opposite of writing, isn't it?
2: Well, it is really.
1: But, but, you know, even going into the kind of writing
2: thing, I mean, even that was a little, kind of a bit of an accident because I can remember i kind of missed the beginning of the alternate comedy thing. So I was busy in the band. I mean, I knew about it, but I wasn't involved um, when I kind of, when I found my interest in music at that time fading, comedy was a thing that was on my mind. And I was, and my first thing was, I'm going to have a go at doing stand-up. But, and I, and I went out to all the clubs checking everything out. But by this time, it was a little bit past the beat. And you were getting all those gross city boys out, kind of a bit veered up. Yeah. Making life very difficult for the performers and the performers having to Verbally deal with them in a humorous fashion. Yeah. In a humorous fashion, and I thought I know me, and like you know, I need someone. Mm. You know what I, mean? I I cannot do this. You cannot put me up between put me up in front of these kind of people. <laughs> I will not. You know, I won't be Frank Skinner. I will not be funny. I'll be a, I'll be really angry. <laughs> so um, I decided that writing might be a better idea, and it was a great period for um. You, you know, I've been a big fan of that there was like a Friday night on Channel 4 for a long time, which is the best of American sitcoms. Hmm. you know, with like Cheers and Golden Girls and uh, early Roseanne, you know, back in the day when she was bonkers enough to marry Tom Arnold but not yet vote on Donald Trump, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, and those shows had a really big influence on me. Um, so I thought, kind of have a go at writing.
1: One. So when when you when you're writing this memoir, and I ask this about people that do um documentaries, but I think because you've sort of almost, even if it's edited highlights, are not everything about your life, but it's the things that you find interesting and entertaining. What do you feel that? What perception about yourself do you think has changed or altered from before you started writing the book to having now written the book? You know, having almost like self-analyzed yourself.
2: Uh, okay, yeah,
1: yeah. Um,
2: That's a that's a a, that's a really astute question. Um, um, I'm very much a person who, I think, professionally, you know, and socially, I I kind of live in the now quite a lot, and always have done. Which means one of the downsides of that is you leave other things behind. I mean, I I intimated before that I've kind of left some work things behind. You know, yeah, I realize. Uh, to my regret, I think I'd also done that with people along the way, um, and you know, and I realised the fact that I was writing about them, and some people's names came up quite a lot. That they were important people who I loved, and maybe you know that was I could have been, I could have done better. Yeah. Uh, so I've, I've kind of actually reached out to some people. As, as a result of it.
1: Oh, fantastic.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, can do better. You know, that's kind of what I thought, really. <laughs> you, you know, um, but that's, when you ask so you know, everyone always says to you, it's really great to live in the now, you know. Well, I'm really good at living in the now, but I think it also has its disadvantages, you know. It's, yeah. Uh, you know, and i realised, right, and, you know, so much about my past and... <laughs> You know, much more. Know, like some people that have, I mean, generally the response to the book has been fabulous, and I'm really grateful. But one or two people have kind of sort of said, "I'm surprised it's not more about film or there's not more about music." I think, mean, well, maybe that's just an accurate representation of where everything sits within me. Yeah. So yeah, uh, and you know, as I say, that the contents were not thought about. It was I wrote this story if I wanted to, then another one. Having when I had to, you know, check it, copy check it, I actually read the whole book for the first time. Oh, wow. And I, and I, yeah, it's kind of weird. Uh, and I actually thought, even though it is kind of very random, actually, if you do put it all together, it gives you a pretty good idea of what I'm like, for better or for worse, and what my life has been like as well. I think it does. It gives you as good an idea as if it was a full... Representation, hmm. uh, which might be luck, or maybe that's just instinctively
1: how it's worked out. And thinking about the sort of subtitle to your book, um, how much do you think if, if your mother could have been here to read to read the book, how much do you think it would upset her?
0: <laughs>
1: it's hard
2: to say. I mean, um, uh, I mean, I mean, she was my biggest critic, but she was also my biggest fan. Um, she was also. Like a, you know, she was like a passive aggressive tsunami with a PhD in emotional manipulation as well, you know. Um, I mean, she didn't approve originally of my career choices. I mean, I walked out of law college after three weeks and got a job in a clothes shop. Um, you know, and I say, like, you know, she she was like the archetypal Jewish mother about that, but ultimately, um. Y- y- you know, she was a supporter. You know, when, when the band started doing well, you know, she would listen to John Peel every night. <laughs> you know, this East End Jewish woman suffering through cabaret, Voltaire, and whatever to get to the latent buzzards. Um, and then later on, during the golden age of the VCR, when I started getting <laughs> stuff on telly, she'd record everything. Um, she always struggled with a timer. Um, and uh, I can remember once she told me that she was a. Uh, She said, oh, I said, you know, one of your shows was on last night and I set the timer on and I I really missed it. She said, "And I missed it. I said, no, I said, dread." She said, no, no, I said, it was all right because it just recorded your name at the end. She said, you know what I mean? It was like, it was kind of what she really cared about. (laughs) But, yeah, uh, I don't know. I think, you know, she would be happier with a book than... Anything else really, you know, I had a really very blue collar working class upbringing, yeah. as, as you know. But my mum was the one that you know she would, I don't know, correct my spelling, correct my grammar, and things like that habitually. I mean, mm. absolutely habitually. And kind of, you know, the only thing I was ever really half good at was kind of English at school, really. Okay, you know. and um, I think, I think perhaps yeah, a book might be something she might finally take her hat off to, you know. But as I say, she was very supportive of all the other things as well or indulgent, I'm not sure. Yeah.
1: Well, look, in indulge, fact, indulge myself in one more question, only because I know half the story, because yeah. I've, I've asked this before. I remember watching a Top of the Pops clip of yourself performing mod Romance, and you're, you're all wearing, like, naval outfits, but you're wearing this wonderful string vest and and I just want you to just because just with you with you saying how music and clothes was part was part of your life, like just to give, paint a picture of how different it was in in a world now dominated with stylists and people with brands. How did that outfit come together? That you, I'll tell you, I'll tell you exactly what happened.
2: I mean, at the, at the beginning, you know, we were, you know, I was a clothes maniac, so I was going out and buying the clothes or ordering them or having them mm. made and designed for us. As you get busier, that gets kind of harder to do. So you end up kind of delegating. And I think that was just about the time record companies and whatever were starting to stick their free months within, you know. (laughs) And I think we'd been on tour. We came back to record the Top of the Pops and there were all these naval outfits waiting for us. We looked like the fucking cast of Love Boat, right? (laughs) And I'm like, you know, it had nothing to do. There was no naval link. To, to, to the music at all. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, this is bizarre and I'm really not happy going on dressed like, you know, <laughs> like the crew of VSS Love Boat or whatever. So I legged it and I went down Lawrence Corner. Do you remember Lawrence Corner? Like, uh, were, were you in London then? Lawrence no, 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 no. This,
1: no, no, no. Ah, uh, it's this fantastic
2: kind of uh military and naval second-hand shop that used to be on the Euston Road. It was absolutely brilliant, you know, it was like oh, all man. this. Sort of... Yeah, it was absolutely brilliant. Used to get loads of clothes in there, and I uh, so I, I got myself a really nice pair of long white naval shorts. You know, the type that you'd wear in the tropics, mm-hmm. a string vest and a Popeye cap, <laughs> which uh, I thought looked pretty good, but it was also a bit of a process. Yeah. Uh, to the clothes that the record company had bought for us. And I noticed that uh, in the latest Dexys tour, Kevin Rowland is wearing a very similar hat. So, you know, I was ahead of the curve,
1: baby. <laughs> well, look, thanks for sharing that little introduction then to From Mohair Suits to Kinky Boots, how music, clothes and going out shaped my life and upset my mother. <laughs> Let us now talk about three films that have impacted everything in adult life. Now, that's grander than maybe you might have anticipated before you come on, but we'll, we'll, we will get through this in a in a way that gets us some stories linked to your love of film. um And when those passions, I guess when those passions are running highest, like you said before, you're, you're either all in or you're all out in terms of your love of any kind of... I,
2: I, yeah, I, I am a little like that. um I mean, one film that had a, a really strong impact on me, and it's not the kind of film you would associate with me, oddly enough, but Jaws was one. I mean, obviously... I mean, it was probably the first film that was ever called a blockbuster. So obvious, it's an obvious film to like. It's it's a brilliant film. But it it was something different that happened. When I was watching it, I had, I don't know what's the word. I had like a revelation. Um, Where did you you see it for the first time? Oh, Just a local cinema. Would have been just a regular local cinema. What was it? Mid-70s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 75, 76. Yeah, yeah. It would have been just a regular local cinema. Um, It was the first time I can remember sitting there watching a film. Uh, And I was a film fan, always was a film fan.
1: Mm.
2: And thinking to myself, this isn't really a film about a shark. It's not. I'm hardly seeing the shark. It's a film about these three blokes in a room and who they are and how they interact and what their different pressures are and their competition with each other and what they've got going on in their lives. It's putting these three people together and just cranking the pressure up. I kind of.
0: Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app.
2: And it's the I think that's the first time I'd ever kind of, what's the word? I don't know, looked behind the scenes, looked into how something was working. Yeah, yeah. And it yeah. just happened. It just happened. and I remember running around telling my friends, this is not a film about a shark. This is a film about three men. Like, fuck off you mug, it's called jurors Of course it's about a shark. Yeah. You know, um, but it, it was quite a big deal to me, that. And it was something I started doing then, you know. Taking things to bits a little bit, looking at them, trying to work out how they worked, and I mean with my hands, I am terrible. I can't fix anything. I can barely do my shoes up you know oh. uh, I can't draw i can't I can't, I can't fix you know I'm hopeless, but I do kind of think that mentally I'm pretty good at kind of disassembling stuff and working it out and putting back together again, and I think that has served me pretty well because I think I've learned to write songs from that mm. and TV and film to, to a degree. Um it's all it's all come from being a fan and looking and listening to things that you think are really good and thinking, you know, why is that so good? And washing it and rewashing it and rewashing it. Mm. You know, and uh it as I say, it it served me, it served me pretty well really, and that, that was the beginning of it. It was very much, I, I can actually, you know, that and... Had you begun songwriting at that point? Not really, no, the songwriting wouldn't start. started. Songwriting started about 77. Okay. Uh, you, you know, and I listened to loads of records that I liked, you, you know, and I started, and literally got a pen and paper out, you know, which is much what I did with TV and with film you know, just started making notes. Mm. This is what you need to do to make a good film. You know, this is what you need to do to make a good song. This is the structure. This is the form. This is what you're looking for. And obviously you don't get it entirely right first time, but actually having a blueprint, you you know, is a really good kickoff in the right direction. You know, it's why, you know, most writers start writing and the biggest mistake is having no plan and they write and then they... And they might maybe write fifty great pages or thirty great pages, and then they don't know where to go next yeah. because it has a you know, um, and it's just, it's just like having a working blueprint, and uh, that's been kind of helpful to me having that ability. You know, so say I, I I was never fortunate enough to, you know, I didn't go to any kind of music school, I didn't go to any film school or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I, I left school, known. I left school pretty young, so it's all been kind of learned on the hoof, and I think that. In a way, I, I think that's a blessing. It's fortuitous because you know you don't. I, I didn't have to le- to listen to some failed screenwriter lecturing me on film like my son did when he went to uni. Right? You know, I got to I got to learn from really great writers and directors that I was going to watch.
1: I guess I guess that's the thing, isn't it? Because I a producer I work with called Keith Belt, He always talks about the fact that. The one thing we've got is our own taste. And if we can channel that into our work, that's where good work will come. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I've
2: always thought... I mean, we all like our own taste. Of course we do. Yeah, we, You know, but how to convert that taste into reality, you know, how you can actually create your own thing. You know, you need the tools. You know, you've got to have the tools. And, you know, and I think that by watching the people that I most admire and by listening to the people I most admire and trying to work out, broadly speaking, how they're going about it and trying to emulate that. You know, to me, that's as good a way as any. That's our Um, our first five minutes, Jeff.
1: Oh, right. Okay, that's easily done. There you go. You see, it flies away. Do you want to finish that thought, though? Because I think it's an interesting point you're making. It's really that I think, you know... I, I learned the way I did as a fan
2: by watching and listening to people that I adored and revered and respected. Um, and actually, I think that's a fantastic way of learning.
1: One of my favourite examples is Gaz, Gaz, um, Gaz Whelan from Happy Mondays. And he, he said to me that when they, went into the al- when they went into the studio to record the first Mondays album, they were going to make a Sly and the Family Stone record. That's what they were intending to do. And what came out was their music. Absolutely. That's perfect. That that's absolutely
2: perfect. Uh, and I get that. Um, yeah, I completely agree. Um and I I, I think, you know, it's, it's it's been a blessing really because you look at all these great people and you listen to all these great really these great records, you know. What better way to learn, man? You, you know. And it's all free, really. You know what I mean? Mm. You can you know, I, I the beginning of lockdown when everyone was in dread. Right. <laughs> I was looking for I was properly isolated. My kids were at my ex-wife's, so they had a breakout there, so there was no way they were coming back.
1: Mm.
2: <laughs> I was properly isolated. All my works disappeared overnight. Right. right. I've got a house full of films and books. I was so excited, <laughs> you know, while the world was living in dread, I was just gonna watch movies and read books, you know, until this thing cleared itself up. You know, it's fantastic.
1: Clock's ticking now. Next film you gave me was Annie Hall. Where's Annie Hall fit then in the evolution of Jeff, the film enthusiast?
2: Uh, Okay, well, a few things, really. First of all, I loved how adventurous it is. Well, actually, the, the first thing that hit me was the level of comedy in a movie. It was a different kind of comedy from that which I'd been exposed to before, more self-aware, more sophisticated. Without a doubt. Um, Yeah, you know, a little bit more neurotic, obviously. You know, a very strong kind of Jewish humour thing through it. But I'd never actually seen comedy of that nature in a film before. Hmm. Um, And I took to it kind of immediately. Um, I was also really found it thrilling the way he just, as a director, did what he wanted you know, it's like, oh, I wanna put a piece of camera, in. I'm just gonna I'll do that then. You know, I wanna to switch to I wanna to switch to a cartoon, you know, I right? I'll i never do that. I mean there was a fantastic scene where him and Annie walk back into a scene from their, their youth and they you know they enter the scene that Annie's child Annie's teenage years or whatever it was mm. she was and they're standing in the room. And I'm like, this is amazing. It's so much fun. Why has no one ever thought of that before or done it before? And I can, you know, I nicked the idea and put it in a TV show I was doing. You know, I mean, it's just, just brazen, stealing, really. <laughs> you, you know. Um, and I thought it was, yeah. I mean, I, I just loved his relaxed style of filmmaking and how he didn't, he didn't seem to make a big deal about doing things that were actually quite avant-garde. I mean, oh. also, you know, for a rom-com, as well, it has an unhappy ending, but it isn't unhappy. Yeah, work yeah. that one out. Yeah, work that one out. You come away quite happy for, you know. Basically, they've just grown up and lived their lives. But he has happy memories of her. She has happy memories of him. That doesn't sound earth shatteringly different. But think of another film that's done anything like that.
1: No, 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 you're right. No, because it's it's you know, kind they, of it's like because so, film usually has to have like. It's epiphany, whereas so it has to be glorious and, and or eternity, you know, happily ever after. Whereas like happily moving on to the next chapter is not usually the move, the move of a film, is it? No, it's, it's <laughs> not at all. You know, I, I mean,
2: you know, normally you have to work hard to overcome your shortcomings, become a better person, then you get what you want. Yada yada yada. Yeah, didn't do didn't do any of that at
1: all. You know, they basically they grew apart, <laughs> but it's still happy. I, d- I mean, one thing. I mean, it's not something. I mean, I I, I shy away from comedy writing, and into in, in, well, not that I don't do anything funny. That's because right. you're not funny. That's because you're not vaguely funny, Stuart. <laughs> See? oh come on now, Jeff. Uh, exactly. But but one of the main reasons is is because of the idea of exposing your own neuroses. You know, it's like it's it's accepting you neurotic and then making fun of yourself as as um as Woody Allen does so well. He's is, is putting it all out there, isn't he? He's not he's not hiding anything. And, that, well, and I he find he that is. quite scary. He is, but
2: I've always thought that perhaps people, I, I, I think, you know, you choose to show one facet of yourself and he knows he's got that side, yeah. But, you know, I don't think you get to be kind of Woody Allen have the canon of work he does by being a neurotic person who's scared about everything, you, mm. you, you know. Okay. I think, you know, I think you pinpoint what, sides of yourself you wish to reveal. Um, you know, I I don't I, I don't think it necessarily has to be the complete and whole unexpurgated version.
1: Mm.
2: You know, I mean maybe some people do that. I don't think in his case, you know. I don't think so. I mean I mean the other thing as well with I mean also not just Annie Hall but with Woody Allen's movies generally. I mean you know I grew up with a kind of Jewish family mm. um and I think it was, what movie was? It? I think it was Radio Days, where they're all sitting around a table, arguing, laughing, everyone talking louder to try and make themselves heard. And I can remember sitting there thinking, "This is my family," and <laughs> that was a real, you know, I, I, that was a real kind of wake-up call for me. I was quite shocked. I'm like, "But this is in America. How could it be my family?" And I wasn't really terribly aware of kind of Jewish culture. Okay. You know, not really, you know, I mean, I just grew up the way I grew up. No one ever told me that was Jewish culture. Do you know what I mean? Okay. But to actually see, to actually see that someone on another in another country is right in saying it looks just like my family was kind of, you know, it was, it was kind of welcoming as well in a way. It was a nice thing. It was a yeah, no, thing. it must be. It must be. It, it, you know, um, so I think from
1: that, there we are, mate. Yeah, another, so, another five minutes are up. God, goodness. Yeah.
2: I'm sorry if I read it on too much. No, that's yeah, perfect. No, this mean. is
1: the whole point. I want to get... The whole point of it is to try and capture what it is that excites you. It's not about exhausting it till we're all tired of talking. It's uh, it's it's very much about the brevity of it. Now, we haven't got a film title, but we have got a filmmaker. So for the next five minutes, what is it about Al Maldivar that excites you? Um. If I had to sum up, if I had to sum it up really
2: briefly, it's it's his continue his continued complete passion and commitment to his work, which I just find awesome and awe inspiring. I mean, I happen to like his films as well, and I think he's a complete. You know, I don't normally have a lot of time for auteurs being a writer, mm. but I, make, I I do make an exception for for him. Uh, I think he makes unique films like no one else. You know, they're the most incredibly Spanish films ever. You know, he's a unique man, you know, being kind of a gay filmmaker in those post-Franco years. You know, there's no one's ever going to be doing what he's done ever again. It's, it's a one-off.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he sort
2: of chants I his love history. Yeah, book. totally, totally. Um, and I like the fact that whatever kind of movie he skips around to, it's still, in, you know, if it's a horror movie or some melodrama or a really trite comedy, they're all immediately recognisable as our mode of our movies. I love that he can do that. I love how beautiful his sets are. I think he's got the best musical taste ever. You know, he... he
1: hadn't thought about it Yeah, No, he his... does. He really does put music to oh. the floor, doesn't
2: he? Oh, uh, I mean, he's got fantastic... I mean, an artist that I've been adoring for years began... I think I heard her in Kika Travella Vargas. You know, who's a fantastic singer. I first heard it, it was one of his songs, and I just couldn't stop singing it. I think I think it was from Kika, and um, you know, I think he's got exquisite taste. Um, I, I also I went to see that. You know, he's got that short Western out stretch, strange wildlife. I've not. Like, I don't do no, know. No, no, no,
1: that's not.
2: Right. He's. I, I don't know if you know this, but he, he turned down the gig for Brokeback Mountain um, uh, because he didn't think. That he would be given the freedom that he demands to do what he wanted. Okay, um, but he's made a short of I think probably what he might have done. It's a gay western. Mm. Of <laughs> it's about uh, two cowboys, and um, and it's all right. It's fine. It's perfectly good. Uh, who's it with? Uh, I can't remember their names. Um, Ethan Hawke. Any, anyway, uh, Ethan Hawke and Pedro Pascal. The other, the annoyingly good looking guy, yeah. yeah. Him, uh, I mean, it's very good, it's very good. Um, it's only a 30 minute movie, but th- w- when I saw it, there was a Q&A with him afterwards, right? His drive and passion, still, I mean, there is not a second of that film, an item of clothing worn by someone, a picture on a wall, a note of music playing that is not. Designed and desired by him. It's a reference to this, it's a reference to that. And it, the exuberance that he spoke about it with. And you know, it's just, well, you know, that's what I want to be like. Uh that's what I one of the things that actually put me off of being a screenwriter and still does, is the fact that you're never really given that kind of freedom. No, you know, that's you're true. just one, you're just one small part of the machine and do your job and you know, go on. Um but to see his drive, I thought it was just really inspiring. And the, the woman interviewing him made the mistake of saying to him, do you think, you know, after that film ends, it's only 30 minutes, do you think that they would eventually end up together? He looked like he was about to explode <laughs> and then talked to her through the next hour of what the movie would be. Fantastic. Yeah, you know, and... It's like, wow, you know, that's what I want to feel like on something that I'm doing. You know, yeah. that's the kind of freedom I would like and the passion that I want. And I find that awesomely inspiring. I mean, I also like that from the very beginning, you know, it. one of the things that definitely impacted on me was his use of really what, we then thought of as unconventional characters, you know, having gay characters or transsexual characters. or um, And to put them in, you know, pivotal roles and actually still make the movies quite cheerful as well. You know, it's not like, oh, we're dealing with these subjects, it's got to be really heavy. These characters were often really happy and fun. And they were so different from the kind of protagonists that I was used to seeing in English... Without a doubt, and American movies, you know, yeah, and it it absolutely, one hundred percent, there was a direct line between seeing that, and you know, writing in the character in Kinky Boots. I mean, that really, that was a mixture of that, and having worked with Divine, it was those two things, you, you know, so it was really direct not even a subtle influence you know Well,
1: that's fantastic i mean but but, see, but seeing the opportunity and then channeling it into what you into the story you want to tell
2: yeah i'd liked my story to have been more i, I, I mean you know i butted heads quite a lot with yeah. the powers that be um on that because i wanted it to be a little bit more extravagant and colourful i think the uh, i think the show ultimately embraced the character More than the film did, right? Because you know, because I think it's the stage, and uh, they they naturally favour. Of course,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Now, now we've got to the end of five minutes again, but um, I just want to I just want to pick up one of one of the things you gave me that we've not touched on is, uh, and there's a few things you gave me as prompts, but I'd love to know about a canned story while writing for Elton John. If you can share that with me before we go. Oh, yeah, no, it's, it's quite funny. I had
2: a film out called It's a Boy Girl Thing that was, uh, it, you know, screening during the film festival. Not as part of the film festival, I should point out. Um, a high school body swap movie replete with a king's ransom and knob gags it was never <laughs> going to be a hot contender for the Palme d'Or. Um, but it was. Um, it was being screened. Uh, as part of you know the sales promotion, yeah, in the, the marketplace, in the marketplace, yeah, uh, and more importantly, Elton was trying a big bash at his chateau for it and screening the movie, <laughs> which is not a bad day out, coming, no man, let's be honest. So, you know, <laughs> I, I, I'm at the chateau early, uh, you know, walking around the place, you know, it's like I've never walked in a house like it in my life, it's like the most fantastic, it's like an art gallery, it's just beautiful, yeah, just beautiful, you know. Um, and then the trying really hard to be on the best P's and Q's, decided not to drink. Oh. I thought that would be a good... Well, I thought, I'm there a long time. And, I can, you know, I have a fondness for alcohol, as you may have heard.
1: Um, <laughs> I think I've seen.
2: Yeah, well, sometimes, you know, I, I, I hadn't behaved terribly well at the premiere of Kinky Boots. Um, I had a little bit of a set two with a Disney exec who I didn't really take to. <laughs> Um, she told she told me I'd never work in this town again. Oh blimey. Yeah. Yeah, smitten down by a cliche in the prime of my career. You know what I mean? It was like. <laughs> um, so, but but I really liked Hilton and David. They'd been nothing but gracious and supportive. So I didn't want to mess up. So I was kind of, mm. you know, I sobered the night out. Um, mingled with the great and the good. Met Lulu. <laughs> told her, I said to her, You really made me want to shout. Didn't get a laugh, nothing at all. Right. So I've done everything kind of, you know, shaking hands with everyone that I was meant to. And then it came to the screening of the film and the film hadn't turned up. Right. I mean, it, I think it had been um it had been uh, FedExed over or whatever by Icon or whoever was dealing with it. Hmm. And I don't know if it's the same now, actually it might be, but in those days, when it got to the when it gets to the other country. It kind of gets re-raffled off to kind of local people who deliver it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, yeah. you with me? Yeah? Yeah, yeah. And it had been and it had been taken by a father and son team who, as it turned out, didn't work Sundays. So <laughs> you've got this huge ball going on at this fabulous chateau, yeah. all for this movie. with like posters and this and everything like that. And the movie didn't turn up. <laughs> You know, it was like uh I mean uh I thought you know we were gonna see one of Elton's hissy fits, but that didn't happen. Um I mean they managed to get it rescreened the following day at a cinema in town. Um I remember sitting there next to a friend of mine who's also a comedy writer. And I said to him, you know, I was really nervous with the situation. Yeah, you know, yeah. just really yeah. felt like I'm being judged here. I said to him, I really hate I said, I really hate watching my own work. He said, Don't worry, you're in good company. So does everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Uh, thanks a lot, mate. But the thing is, I mean, I, I was, the funny thing is actually this this is in the book. Sounds like a book plug, but wasn't really intended to be. But I was still really buzzing, you know, it'd been like a really exciting thing to happen to I me. Imagine you know. So, yeah. Um anyway, I got home as I walked into my into my house when I arrived back back in London, which was the day, the day after, and my entire house was flooded. A, a pipe had burst, right? And at two in the morning, I'm still on the phone to a plumber trying to work out what a stopcock is, you know. And it's like, <laughs> my life, man, you know, like one foot there,
1: one foot there. And never the twain shall meet, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, that's a perfect uh, story to end on. Um, from mohair suits to kinky boots, how music, clothes, and going out shape my life and upset my mother. By Jeff Dean, is out now, and it just gives me to say thank you very much for joining us on the Britflix podcast.
2: Stuart, thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. I, wa- I was worried we wouldn't have sufficient to talk about, but there you go. I haven't stopped yakking.
1: Um, I wasn't worried one bit, Jeff.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I could actually talk to you for another hour now easily because we haven't really spoken that much about movies. I could speak a lot more about movies.
1: Well, look, no, we've got we've got plenty there, and I just thank you for we it. Should go, we'll go, we should go we got we should get for a pint again one night. Indeed, It's been a while.